dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am excited to share my conversation with Jason Haas of Tablas Creek. The winery can be said to practically have put sustainable farming on the map. Between Jason's blog, Instagram Live, and YouTube channel, there is always something exciting to learn about wine from him. Through a partnership with Chateau de Bocastal in the Rhone Valley, Tablas Creek is also responsible for bringing the Rhone varieties to Paso Robles and beyond. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you may know that they ask for Patreon. We do not plan on doing this, but we do ask for your support by leaving a review. It takes only a few seconds of your time, but means so much to the show. The next best way to support Exploring the Wine Glass is to tell your friends. If you enjoy the podcast, your wine-loving friends will too. Finally, don't forget to head over to the website, exploringthewineglass.com, to read the blog and to sign up for the newsletter so that you can keep up with all happenings. Slancha. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Day service, champagne and Conteron specialist, and a WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. All right, so we are here today on location at Tablas Creek on the way west side of Paso, and I am here with Jason Haas, so welcome, or I should say thank you for having me in. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thanks, Lori. Um, so Tablas Creek... First of all, whenever somebody says, who should we visit when we're in Paso, you're obviously the top person, I say. And the reason why is I think, one, you're such a mainstay in Paso, but two, you're so beneficial to everybody in Paso. You really are a leading figure in Paso. So like, how did you even get here? How did Tablas Creek find Paso? First of all, thank you. <laughs> um, so... We, the, the story that would become Tablas Creek actually started way before we had a connection to Paso. Um, Tablas has always been conceived of as this joint project. It's still equally owned and run by two families. One of them is my family. My dad was a, an American importer of mostly French wines uh, named Robert Haas, and his company was called Vineyard Brands. Our other partners are one of the French winemaking families whose wine he represented all the way back into the 1960s. This is the Perrin family of Chateau de Beaucastel and Famille Perrin in, in the south of France. So they came up with the idea of doing kind of a Chateau Neuf du Pop inspired project somewhere in California just through traveling together to promote their French wines around the United States. And they would come to California talk about how much it reminded them of the south of France and wonder why they saw everybody planting Cabernet and Chardonnay and Merlot and Pinot Noir and not Grenache, Syrah, Morvedre, Roussin, Marsan, Viognier. So in the mid-70s, they talked about starting a Rhone project themselves. They got serious about it in 85 and started looking for land. And there were three things that they were looking for that they ended up only being able to find here in Paso. And those were this favorable climate, with a long growing season, plenty of sun, plenty of heat to ripen things like Morvedre and Roussan, but moderated with cool nights, a little bit of altitude, ocean proximity to keep things like Viognier and Syrah viable. Second thing they were looking for was enough rainfall to farm without having to irrigate. And that's hard because a lot of the parts of California that have enough heat to ripen these rum varieties are too dry to dry farm. But where we are tucked into the hills in, in West Paso, we're at altitude, we're only 10 miles from the Pacific, and we get a lot of rain. We average 26 inches of rain here. And last winter, we got almost 50. <laughs> and then finally, the third thing, and the thing that really sealed the deal for, for Paso, is that we were looking for high calcium soils. And that means we have to be on the Pacific tectonic plate, not the North American plate. And most of the established wine regions in California are on the North American plate, whether you're talking Napa or Sonoma or Mendocino or the Sierra Foothills. 
all of those are, are on the North American plate and don't have these chalky soils. But this kind of outcropping in West Paso and West Templeton is the largest exposed calcareous soil layer in the state. And so you combine that with the, the soils and the, and the rainfall, I mean, the soils with the rainfall and the climate, and they were convinced this is the right spot to do it. And so they, they wanted to make Rhone-style wines, but in California. That was their goal? They thought that these grapes had a chance to be great in this mm-hmm. climate if they could find the right soils and the right, right little microclimate. And, I mean, that's, that's sort of what inspires, I think, a lot of the, the Europeans who've come to California is that they look at the raw materials we have here and say, wow, so it, so it doesn't rain during the growing season? You don't have humidity? You don't have to worry about mildew? You don't get hail? And you have this, this lovely swing in temperature between the daytime high and the nighttime low? Like, this is paradise. <laughs> right. But they, they thought that it's a Mediterranean climate, so why are people not focusing on Mediterranean grape varieties here? And yeah. thought that there was the opportunity to do something something really special. And when they came here, I mean, Paso, we came here like 25 years ago. And I mean, we were like, oh, there's wine here, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, you were before that. So what? how did, was it just the understanding of what Paso formation was? And you're like, I don't care that there's not really wine here yet. We're going to be these yeah, it was really Pioneers. the raw materials yeah. were here. My dad never lacked for confidence in, in his <laughs> own ability to figure the, the stuff out if he had the right resources. So it, it wasn't like there wasn't a history of wine here. There was. We were, when we bought our property in 1989, we were the 17th winery here. So there were 16 wineries already. There were something like 5,000 vineyard acres planted oh, in okay. Paso. But it was people doing kind of very different stuff than what we were planning to do. There was essentially no roans in the ground here in 1989 when we started. There was some old Zinfandel vineyards. There were people who were starting to do some of the larger plantings that you see now in like the Estrella and Geneseo districts, planting Cabernet, planting Chardonnay. But in terms of sort of high-end Rhone-inspired stuff, there was nothing here. And I think the reaction when my dad and the parents chose this spot was, was sort of bafflement from all the people they knew in the wine business. So the response was more or less, okay, great, but why are you making your lives so difficult? Because <laughs> I don't think Paso was on anybody's list of the next great California wine region. Right. But for my dad, it was basically like, you got the soils, you got the climate, you got the, you got the rainfall. The rest is just like elbow grease, um, right. perseverance. Right. It, you have the trifecta, now you just have to put yourself in the race. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't as though there was anywhere in California that had really established itself as kind of the nexus for, for Rhone varieties. There right. were people working with Rhones. There was Randall Graham up in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. There was Bob Linquist down in, um, in northern Santa Barbara County. There was, whatever, there was the folks um, at... Uh, like Fred Klein up in Sonoma, there was yeah. Bill Easton up in the Sierra foothills, but there wasn't like a region that had established itself as the place to do this. And we felt like maybe this could be that region and, and it's turned out that way, which has been cool. So you actually brought vines over. So these are actual Chateau de Bocastel vines, correct? They are. They are. That was one of the first things that we realized we needed to do because we wanted to be able to work with the full diversity of, of varieties that they use at Bocastel. And that's one of the things Bocastel is famous for, is using all 13, you can argue about the number, <laughs> all 13 of the Chateauneuf grape varieties that are on the official lists. And if you looked at what was available in California, there was there was Syrah here, there was Viognier here, those were both pretty good. There was some Marsan here, and then it started to get dicey. There was Grenache and Morvedra, but it seemed like those had been brought in or selected for high productivity rather than high quality. So there was a lot of, lot of kind of bulk wine being made from those. Mm-hmm. And then there were grapes like Crunoise and Grenache Blanc and Pinkpool that nobody had ever used in California. So they just didn't exist. And we decided early on that we didn't want to wonder forever after if we had limited our, our, our ceiling by living with what was already here. 
given that we had partners in France that we could get cuttings from and brought them in. But it was a, it turned out to be, I think, a really consequential decision. But it also cost us a lot of time and money because right. it was three years waiting for the vines to clear quarantine. And then two more years of propagating the six kinds of each type you're allowed to bring in until we had enough to start planting just like a few rows right. of each vineyard. And, and so it was, it was very much a decision made with the long-term prospects of, of, of what Thomas Creek could be in mind. And it was only possible because both of the, the founding partners had other businesses that were supporting them at that point. This was like the most uneconomical way of starting a, <laughs> starting a state winery that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and so you bring it in, the vines have to clear quarantine so that we're not having a whole other phylloxera Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's basically <laughs> pests, viruses, and viruses is what they're most worried about, that you right. might bring in a disease that would spread and wipe out your, wipe out your community. And then so only allowed six of each variety and then you propagate that and that doesn't happen overnight. And so now how many acres of vines do you have? <laughs> so we started, the property that we bought was 120 acres. Okay. And that was mostly plantable. I think we had, okay. we were able to plant like 110 of the 120 acres on that property. Um, and then we had the opportunity to buy the next parcel to the south of us in 2011, which is another 150 acres of which about 70 are plantable. So we have right now about 140 acres planted, though 25 of those aren't yet in production because they're relatively newly planted. We have another 30 or so acres still to plant. And how did you decide, uh, and you have all 13 or suppose <laughs> I'm laughing because I know the whole right. Um, the thirteen are you have them all here on site. We do now, yeah. and that was one of the really exciting developments of the last couple of years. Is we finally got Muscardin, which was the last of those last of those thirteen, out of quarantine. It's been sixteen years in quarantine because it, they had, it had viruses, and it was very hard for the the scientists up at UC Davis to clean it up. It oh. finally got released to us, and we grafted it into the vineyard in 2019. And we finally got our first, our first tiny harvest off of it. We made one barrel out of it last Aww. year. Was there much celebration? Oh, there was so much celebration. <laughs> so much celebration over this grape that, like, none of us know if it's ever going to be any good. Even it's it's uh, it's super obscure even in France. But um, it's we think of the, there as really being fourteen varieties because in the old Chateau de Fipop lists they don't separate Grenache Noir and Grenache Blanc, and you really should like right. the idea that those are not genetically distinct grape varieties and and worthy of recognition and celebration. I think is very old fashioned. So okay. we have we have all fourteen of those. Plus we have uh, Viognier and Marsan that are allowed in Cote du Rhone, but not Chateau Neuf du Pop. So they're allowed just on the other side right. of that imaginary line. Right. And then we've got a few non-Rhone varieties like Tanat and Vermentino. Okay, and and you do make single varietals out of how many of those fourteen? We have made over over the years single varietal bottlings of, I think all of them except for Muscardin okay. up to this point, and we can't do that every year. Right, it's just I mean, there are years where either we absolutely need everything for one of our blends, and there are years where it's just not exciting enough to want a bottle on its own and have it represent this grape that people don't really know. It has to has to clear both of those right. bars for us to bottle a varietal bottling of something. But we try to do as many as we can in a in a in a normal year because we know that these are grapes that are still pretty new to a lot of people. And if we can help show people why they should get excited about them, we feel like that's that's something that's that's really worth doing. Well, I don't know. Um, it, I'm sure you are familiar with the, I think it's the Centennial Club. Yeah. Right? So Thomas Creek has helped me out big time, has helped me out big time with with being in that club. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, uh, the latest one that I tried, and I'm probably going to say it wrong, uh, I was actually uh, on Google yesterday trying to have them pronounce it um, Borbulunk. That was, that's very close. Yeah. Yay, Google. <laughs> yeah, Bourboulon. Um, that's one of the obscure, relatively obscure white Rhone varieties that we got into production in 2019. And 
It's turned out to be terrific. They're actually planting oceans more of it, but it's it's become more popular in recent years in Chateauneuf because it maintains its acids even in a warmer and warmer climate. Okay. So it's 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 they're looking valuable. ahead to yeah to that climate change that really isn't here, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got my hands on on a bottle. And I drove all the way out here for that bottle. Um, and it was incredible. It, it, was, it was really incredible. And I was very, very proud to check that off in the, <laughs> in the Centennial Club. It's, uh, so is there more of that single varietal coming up? Because uh, I think I had, this is your second, you did bought two bottles of it, two bottlings? No, we've done it. I think we've done it each year since 2019. Oh, then I was way behind. So 19, 20, 21, and we're just releasing the 22. 22. It's going to go out to okay. to the wine club members that we have who just want white wine. We don't have enough to send it out to the like right the, to everybody. The, like the classic club that gets both reds and right. whites. But okay, so I missed your first year because I think I had the 20. So. I think we, that first year, I think we made like two barrels. Oh, okay. yeah, there wasn't a lot. <laughs> okay. it, it wasn't like you missed this big release. <laughs> Um, and then all of these vines that you have brought back, you now have a nursery, right? So am I correct in a lot of the people here, especially here in Paso, but other places that have Rome varieties, they're actually getting the vines from those actual clippings, those propagations? Yeah, and that, that's a decision that we made early on. I say we. I was in high school. I was not making this decision. <laughs> but it's a decision that my dad and the parents made early on not to try to keep these vines proprietary, but instead to make them available to anybody who wanted to buy and plant them. Because we felt that the biggest thing that was holding back the category of Rome varieties in California was that there just wasn't the full range of varieties and clones available to make the best wines that, that could be made. So even before we had wine to sell, we were selling vine cuttings to people. And there was a stretch in the early 2000s where we were selling close to a million vines a year. Yeah. So we've sold... We've sold vines to something like 600 vineyards and wineries up and down the West Coast from Washington State to all the way to like Texas and Virginia. But about 100 of those vineyards are here in Paso. That's got to be a really like I, I think coming from, you know, a microbiologist in the food industry and seeing and a husband being a food chemist. Right. When we see our products on the shelf. It's a cool feeling to see our products on the shelf. And then you have your wine. So you have Tablas Creek and that always has to be a good feeling to see somebody, you know, you're just walking down the street or you're at some restaurant and somebody has a Tablas Creek bottle, you know, like that's a good feeling. But to know that all of these other vineyards are making their wines because of you and because of the hard work and dedication you did, that must be a whole other level of pride. Oh, it's super cool. It's, <laughs> and it's really fun that the community of Rhone producers is pretty tight. So we all get together at things like the Rhone Rangers <laughs> tasting that happens here in February and the right. Hospice du Rhone that happens every other April. And walking around that room and realizing that two thirds of the producers in that room are doing what they're doing, yeah. at least in part with cuttings that came from Tallis Creek. Yeah, right. it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And so you mentioned the Rhone Rangers. Uh, so we were, we went to the Rome Rangers and uh, you had a quote when I spoke to you there that I thought was the most incredible statement ever. And I had said, well, what is special about Rhone and the Rhone varieties and why do they blend so well together? And your, your quote was, well, you don't make a meal with a single dish or a single ingredient. And, you know, I, it hit home. Yeah, they, they do. But why do you think they blend so well together? I think they blend well together because they, they're different enough that there's value in blending them. Okay. So you've got, let's think, let's talk about the Rhone Whites. So you've got these kind of rich textured grapes, a grape like Roussan and Marsan. You've got rich floral grapes like Viognier. And then you've got bright minerally grapes like Picpoul and Picardin. And then you've got bright textured grapes like Bourbonblanc and Grenache Blanc. So you can, you can combine them in ways that give you both richness and brightness and florality and minerality. You sort of have all of the pieces of what you might have in like your spice cover cupboard right. available and 
there's a lot of grapes, and it can be it can be hard for people to wrap their heads around why. Like why why do you use all those grapes? Why do we have six grapes in our Esprit de Tablas mm-hmm. Blanc? But each of them brings something different to the table, and I think it's that diversity of flavor and of mouthfeel and of aromatics that makes it so fascinating to blend them and, and, and makes you able to adjust to the characteristics that the year gives you and still make something that's compelling uh, every year. So it's, you're allowing each, each individual variety is a different brick in the building of the house. I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or I, I think of it as, as like, like the, the musicians in a band, like you don't really need four guitarists. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really useful to have, have things that each bring something different to the party. And so we have three bottles here. So let's start with Grenache Blanc. How do you describe Grenache Blanc as a single varietal? What, what can someone expect when they're opening a bottle? Grenache Blanc is one of my one of my absolute favorites. It's a, a grape that didn't exist in California before we brought it in, and it's turned into this well, real success story. Well, thank you for that. Yes, I love it. <laughs> you're welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, but it's a it's a grape that has this sort of bright fruit to it. So anything from like white grapefruit to green apple, that kind of crisp bright fruit, and then it also has quite a bit of texture. A lot of brighter Grapes are kind of thin, but Grenache Blanc's not like that. It's got good kind of mouth-filling texture. And then it has this pretty sweet spice, like anise, licorice Mm -hmm. kind of spice. And it shows off minerality really nicely. So it also shows off the limestone-y soil, so that kind of chalky brininess. So for me, it checks all the boxes. It's got fruit, it's got acid, it's got texture, and it's got mineral. And then the Roussan. So I, I'll be 100% honest, Roussan is a hit and miss for me. And I think because, and I I will, I, I want to tell you my thought before you describe it because I'm probably completely wrong. But to me, Roussan is a fuller bodied wine with not as high an acid profile as Grenache Blanc. And that's what I love about the Grenache Blanc is that thing, that that kind of higher acid and that minerality. Roussan to me is more glycerol uh-huh. coating. So yeah, um, no, you're absolutely right. I, I don't I don't disagree with any of that. Okay. <laughs> um, it is a grape which is about richness and texture, it's kind of honey and herbs, right. um, like lemongrass, maybe some like poached pear. But it's a it's a rich grape. Uh, and you can put it in oak um, in a way that you can't most of the other white rounds. Most of the okay. white rounds don't do particularly well with oak. But at the same time, you have to be careful about just emphasizing the weightiness that it has. So when we bottle Roussan as a varietal, we, we're careful to pick the lots that have richness, but also have some of those higher tone notes, more of that kind of lemongrassy character. Because otherwise it can be too much. It's like the same way, like it's a, again, I'm going back to music, it'd be like you got the bass turned all the way up. (laughs) You need something more than that. Um, And that's one of the reasons why it's also a lovely grape to blend, because you can blend into that richness of that Roussan base things that have more acid and have more minerality and make something that kind of gets a little bit of the best of both worlds. But one other thing to kind of highlight about Roussan, because it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual grape. It does a lot of weird stuff, is that it ages beautifully. It ages like a red wine. Oh. So you can go into Roussans that are 15, 20 years old, and what's happened is that honey character that it has when it's young kind of caramelizes a little bit. It becomes like creme brulee. Oh. Um, and a little, a little like a sauterne. Except not sweet. Sweet, right. Um, and yet it doesn't get kind of dark and oxidized tasting. So it, it turns caramelly, you get this lovely nuttiness to it. So it's like hazelnuts and caramel. And yet it stays bright. It stays, you get a little bit of that kind of lemony note. And it can be just this mind-blowing experience if you if you want to wait on it. And that's super unusual for white wines. And so that, that glycerol that some Roussans have, is that a harvest decision? 
or is that a vineyard? Not really. It's, it's just div- what the grape is like. Okay. Um, it's because even if like this Roussan that we have here, I mean, it's eleven and a half percent alcohol. So it's not like we're waiting until November right. just so that we can get it to be like super sugary and, right, and rich right. and it's the sugar that you're tasting for that that richness so it's just what the grape is like it's, it's got this feeling of like almost oiliness right um textural weight on the palate but i find that and it's kind of the same thing with viognier i find that some producers are more into that glycerol thing and then other producers i don't even get that sure on that so yeah, I, I mean, you have to be conscious of when you're picking the grapes. You have to be conscious of the way, the, the amount of crop you're leaving on and how you're farming them. Uh, though I find the the range of expressions of Viognier to be wider than the range of expressions of Roussan. Okay. Roussan's all pretty weighty, pretty textured. Uh, Viognier, if you pick it early, it doesn't get that like peach syrup character that it does if you let it leave it on the vine for a long time and can be almost like bracingly bright but it doesn't particularly taste like viognier to me when it when you do that (laughs) Um, you have to get it to a certain level of ripeness to get that stone fruit character and the the like jasmine honeysuckle characteristics that i think make viognier so that is beautiful so so just memorable right um but there is a very fine line. Like you leave that Viognier on the on the vine too long, then it's like drinking perfume or like body oil, like right. not like wine, because <laughs> it's the the acids fall off fast when you get to that that point of ripeness. There's certain grapes where, like the acids are going to hang on even if you get it super ripe. Right. Grenache Blanc is kind of like that. Okay. But Viognier is not. Viognier starts with good acid, and you get it right. And you better pick it right okay. then, right at that at that moment where it's just right. Because if you leave it for an extra week, your acids are going to just fall, fall off the, off table. the cliff. Okay. And then we have the third bottle we have is the Esprit Blanc. And uh, so that is your true white Rhone blend. We do three white okay. Rhone blends every year. Okay. This, is, this is our flagship. This is the one that we blend for first. And it's the one that we model consciously after the, the white Chateau Nifty Pop that our, our partners make at Bocastel. So it's the, it's the white Rhone blend that we base on Roussan. Okay. And then into that, we blend other higher acid varieties, always Grenache Blanc and Picpoul. Those are, those are regulars every year. Um, and then lesser amounts of of uh, Bourbonblanc and Claret Blanche. So it's it's a, a wine where we want to show off that Roussan richness, and the, the 2021 is 70% Roussan. But that extra 30% is bringing all sorts of other things to the table, all of those mm-hmm. high notes that, that the Roussan usually doesn't do particularly well. Um, and we want to add enough of those things that we get a wine that has both richness and brightness, but not so much that it starts to thin out that essential textural richness that Roussan brings. So this bottle, to me, um, always, and also your red version of it, I love it because it's almost like if you're just going to sit back and drink, it's a beautiful wine. But if you're going to sit back and actually think about what you're drinking, Every time you take a sip, it's almost like, oh yeah, there's a bit of the Grenache Blanc, or oh, there's a bit of the Roussan. So every time you taste it, it's almost like a different, beautiful wine that, you know, because you can taste all of those elements in there. So, you know, it's it's cool how it blends together, but if you really think about it, you can kind of dissect it. And the different components activate in different ways depending on how long it's been since you opened the bottle or how old the wine is or what the temperature is. So one of the things that we realized early on is that well, we sell a lot of the Esprit Blanc that goes out to restaurants. I mean, that's that's our principal principal market for for that wine. And a lot of restaurants serve all of their wines at refrigerator temperature. And Roussan doesn't do well at refrigerator temperature. It tastes like very little. It's sort of almost like sake. It's like just disappears if it's served okay. too cold. Grenache Blanc is lovely when it's really cold. So what often happens is if this wine comes out of a, a restaurant fridge, when people pour it, they get that Grenache Blanc kind of green apple and 
a little bit of sweet spice. I'm like, oh, this is nice. And then it sits in their glass and warms up, and all of that those Roussan notes come out, and it, it like it is a different wine right. after it's been sitting in your glass for five minutes and ten minutes. And the same thing happens as the wine ages. When it's young, you get more of the tropical notes from the Picpoul and the brightness of the Grenache Blanc and that fresh honey character from the Roussan. And then Grenache Blanc, which is not a particularly ageable white wine, it just goes back in the background after a few years to providing texture and acid. And then you're getting more of those like hazelnut and, and caramel notes from the Roussan. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that's fascinating about about blended wines is that like, they take turns as to who's singing lead. Right. Depending on, depending on the conditions in which they're served. And they don't battle. Well, you got to be careful. Like, <laughs> there are grapes you put together sometimes. You're like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, if you're, if, you, if you're blending them properly, they, they, they harmonize. Right. <laughs> And now, you had uh, mentioned earlier the, the Roan Rangers, and so you are definitely an active member in the Roan Rangers. So can you just give a little, for people who don't know what that is, what the association is, and you said that they're here in Paso in, uh, in February, um, but what, what's the goal of the Roan Rangers, and how did this come together? And now, a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracaena Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracaenawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. So it came together informally in the mid-90s. It's an organization, basically, of producers who all make Rhone varieties in the United States and who, who wanted an organization to get together to kind of compare notes. And in the early years, that's really what it was. It was a bunch of friends getting together and bringing the wines that they'd made and being like, okay, I've never made Viognier before. Like, what do you think? <laughs> and it, it got formalized in, I think, 2001, maybe 2000, where it actually became a, a, a nonprofit advocacy organization, which now organizes several events every year. There's the big signature event that happens here in Paso on President's Day weekend every year. But there are, there have been tastings so far this year that have happened up in the Willamette Valley in Oregon and up in Sonoma. Um, there, there are virtual events that people can tune into anywhere. And then next year, it looks like the organization is going to go back on the road and start doing things in, in cities like on the East Coast yeah. or Chicago um, the way that we did pre-COVID to, to kind of bring the category, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a recognized category. It's a known category, but it's still a pretty small niche of the U.S. wine market. And so the idea is that the organization can kind of pool resources among producers to try to expand the reach of the category and get more people aware of it and excited about it. And so we keep talking about Roan, Roan, Roan. Some people may not know where Rhone is, right. <laughs> so Good let's point. get to there. <laughs> so the Rhone is a river in the south of France. It actually starts in Lake Geneva in Switzerland and flows out of the Alps, basically west, a little bit south, but mostly west, until it gets to the city of Lyon, and then turns south and flows south all the way till it gets to the Mediterranean. So there are cities alongside, like Avignon is famous, um, Marseille. And there are two distinct wine regions. There's a, what's called the Northern Rhone, which is sort of in and around Lyon. These are appellations like Hermitage and Coroti and Cornas, where it's basically Syrah. It's mostly Syrah. <laughs> There's little bits of some whites like Viognier and uh, Roussan and Marsan, but it's mostly Syrah appellations. And then there's kind of a gap of about 100 miles where there aren't a lot. There's not a lot in the way of grapes. Then you get to the Southern Rhone, where you have appellations like Chateauneuf-du-Pape and Gigondas and Vaqueras and Vansobre, where Grenache is king. 
Um, and those are almost all blends. So Grenache is king, but they all have other things in them. They've all got Syrah and Morvedra and Cunois and Senso and whites that could include Roussan and Grenache Blanc and Picpoul and all the things that we work with. So it's a, it's a, it's a valley and it's the, the slopes around the, that valley that tend to make the best wines. And it's the part of France that has the most Californian climate. So it's, it's on the Mediterranean coast, so it's sunny, it's warm. And they, the, the, that, that was sort of the genesis of the idea behind Talos Creek, is that those, those grapes that do well in that climate should do really well in California, too. And so if we return back here to Talos Creek, um, they dry farm there because they have to, correct? Pretty much. Okay. They, they will sometimes get dispensations from the local, the local governing right. agency if they're in the middle of a really bad drought or something. But yeah, basically the, the way that the Appalachian laws are written is they're not permitted to irrigate. Okay. So we come back to Tablas and you do dry farm here also, for the most part. Yes. <laughs> yes. You, you hear the okay. little like yeah. uh, quiver in my voice. So we have about a third of the vineyard, which is planted wide-spaced, head-trained, with no irrigation infrastructure okay. that is dry-farmed every year. It has to be. The other two-thirds of the vineyard is planted trying to mimic the vine density of Beaucastel, but putting the, the vines into rows. So it's basically trellised okay. rows. And we we learned that because, one of the one, even though on the on average we get about the same amount of rain as they do in Chateau de Tupac, ours all comes in the winter. And that means that by the time you get to July or August, the top several feet of soil is dry. So in the, the long run, you can dry farm here, but you need to give the vines some help to get their roots down the six or eight feet that they need to Thank get you. down to find where there's water in, in late summer. Mm -hmm. So with those trellised blocks, we have irrigation lines. And we our original goal was to to irrigate them for maybe the first three or four years till the roots got down deeper. But it turned out it took longer than that. Okay. It ends up taking about a decade to, to get the, the roots down to where they can really be self-sufficient. And then you can end up in a multi-year drought cycle. It feels like we've had a bunch of those recently <laughs> yes. where once you're two and three years into a drought, um, the vines really start to struggle. And so what we've, what we've come to realize is there are ways when you're planting closer together that you can irrigate without really messing up your root structure. Because the whole goal of dry farming is to have to, to keep the roots from growing all in the topsoil waiting for your, your drip irrigation. Okay. And instead to encourage deeper and deeper root growth because that makes for more interesting grapes with more character of place. Okay. So you can encourage the right kind of root growth with how you irrigate. So, so if we have, so for example, we just finished a three-year drought cycle in 2021 and 22 vintages. By 21 and 22, we were giving most of those closer spaced trellised blocks a drink during the summer. But instead of doing what you might see in a normal irrigated vineyard where you might irrigate for two hours every couple of weeks, we would give them one 12-hour Oh. So, so really saturate not just the, the topsoil, but down into those deeper calcareous layers and then let it dry out from the top down. So you're encouraging the right. roots to grow deeper and you're rewarding the roots that are deeper instead of the ones that are at the surface. Right. So, so yeah, so basically in a year like this where we got plenty of rain in the winter, we are dry farming everything except for some of the very youngest vines. Right. Yeah, it's a more complicated answer than that. But yeah, the, right. the idea behind the way that we're farming is to get the roots down into those deeper soil layers where they can be more resilient and more self-sufficient anyway. Right. So <clears throat> roots for roots would prefer to lay shallow so that they can get everything there. And then, but when we go deeper, I mean, I think that's where, like you were saying, that's where those characteristics are going to come in, right? Because they're going to be pulling more resources from lower and it adds a little more um, characteristic. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that roots have a preference. Plants are... Plants are going to go with what's available. Okay. They're going to go with what's easy. And if they don't need to expend resources right. to build a deeper root system to find what they need, they won't. Right. Um, but the the thing is that topsoil is pretty much like topsoil. Topsoil is pretty much topsoil anywhere. <laughs> it's not all that distinctive. Right. But the deeper soil layers are what give 
a particular vineyard its unique character. It's kind of the that French concept of terroir, where it's like my dad used to translate that as somewhereness, which I think is a pretty yeah a pretty good description. It's like what is the character that the place brings through the grapes to the wine that could only have come from that place. Right. Excellent. Yeah. If you look at a cross section, you're absolutely right. If you look like at a cross section, that top was that is that the a a horizon or whatever looks the same no matter where you are. You have to go deeper to start to see the the differences in the soil itself. Yep. Absolutely. Now, Thomas Creek is actually the first regenerative organic certified in the world. So Wearing the shirt that today. is <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. But what exactly does that mean? And there's so many terms thrown out there, organic, biodynamic, regenerative. Like what is the difference between biodynamic, regenerative, and why is it so important? Okay, so as a winery who is all of those things, organic and biodynamic and regenerative mm-hmm. organic, um, let, me, let me give the quick breakdown as to how, how I think about the distinctions between them. So organic is simple is powerful because it's simple. It's basically a list of chemicals you can't use. And that means that you have to find another way to do weed control, pest control, and fertilization. In practice, that is largely done by replacing chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs. So you're not putting petrochemical fertilizer on your property, but you're bringing in organic fertilizer that maybe is used for compost. At the same time, it has some blind spots. It doesn't say anything about your use of resources. You could be flood irrigating a water-intensive crop in a desert climate and mistreating your workers. And as long as you aren't using chemicals, you can be organic. (laughs) Um, And it is not particularly concerned with building an ecosystem. So biodynamics is explicitly concerned with building an ecosystem within your farm that is self-sufficient, that will provide natural control, natural fertility, natural controls against pests, natural replacements for weeds. So you're basically building, you're building a unit that has more biodiversity, that focuses on soil health in a way that organics isn't so focused on. The downside of biodynamics, there's there's two. One, it has some of the same blind spots as as organics does, particularly in the use of water. A lot of biodynamic farms are incredibly water intensive in the way that they way that they farm. The other is that the whole concept of biodynamics was was drafted by a an Austrian philosopher 150 years ago, and it includes all of this kind of hopelessly unscientific stuff, like. <laughs> activating cosmic energies and and working in concert with with cycles of the moon and um, putting preps distillations potions of different sorts on the vines that are on whatever your crop is at different times and in general the whole system works but i think it usually works not for the reasons the literature says it works and i think the fact that it is so tied up with this kind of mystical language means that it it's going to be hard to get it adopted widely enough for this to really move the needle. So the idea behind regenerative organics was to come up with a system that takes the most valuable pieces of organics and biodynamics, fills in the, 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 the gaps that each of them has, and then updates it for essentially a modern world where we know that some of our big challenges are things like resource scarcity and climate change. So... It takes a lot of the soil health and biodiversity pieces of biodynamics, almost kind of whole cloth out of the biodynamics handbook, but separates them from the language that um, that I think may be holding biodynamics back. And then it adds things like a focus on reducing your tillage because they've realized, farmers and scientists have realized that you are actually doing a lot of damage to the networks that are building up in the soil every time you break them apart and turn them over. It also includes explicit requirements that you need to be reducing your use of shared resources like groundwater and like non-renewable energy. And then finally, it adds pillars on animal welfare and on farm worker fairness. So you have to have, you have to treat any working animals on your farm well. 
And you have to be paying your farm workers a living wage. You have to be providing training, not just on their skills, but also on more generally applicable stuff like their rights as farm workers or communication and conflict resolution. So you're, you're essentially empowering your people to be more engaged, more connected, more understanding, and then, and then agents of positive change in their communities. So the, the thing that for me really crystallizes what regenerative organics is, is that it's, it's farming in a way where the externalities, the, the side effects of the choices that you make are positive on your land, your neighbors, your community, and the broader environment. And you have lots of animals here. We do. <laughs> I love when you go live and the animals are there. We do. We do. That's a, that's a huge piece of that biodiversity is that you think of most farms. I mean, most farms, like even farms that are trying very hard to do, to, to get out of the monoculture world where you have, maybe you have fruit trees interplanted with your vines or you're, you're leaving native vegetation or you're doing pollinator habitat. But still, an ecosystem should have grazing animals as well as plants because the things that those animals bring in terms of fertility from their manure, in terms of the, the, the soil web where they are seeding the, the, the soil with microbes, I mean, that's almost impossible to replicate without them. And so we got our first flock of a dozen sheep in 2012 and have built that up to now this past winter, we had like 250 sheep. And we, we hired a shepherd back in 2016 to oversee this project. And we, we have this rotational grazing plan where they move through every vineyard block multiple times every winter. And then in the summer are moved out of the vineyard and graze down the grasses and shrubs and things in our forests and reduce our fire risk. And the, the, the impact of that flock on the soils and measurable stuff like carbon content and microbial activity is dramatic. Um, and the fact that they're kind of cute and photogenic <laughs> is fun too, but they're, they're, they're playing a really important role right. here. And so how do you find a shepherd? You just go to like Indeed <laughs> Jobs and say shepherd wanted? <laughs> um, we, we had one drop into our laps. Um, he happened to be working at a, at a neighboring ranch here and was, was really interested in the, the regenerative farming piece of what we were doing and actually came to us and said, so I see that you're running sheep. Like, do you, is this anybody's job or is it just like a side gig for, <laughs> for your vineyard manager? Um, and it, at that point it basically was, it was sort of split between our, our vineyard manager and our winemaker. And that's fine when you have a dozen sheep and you don't have to move them like right. once every two weeks. But when you, you've built up to 60, 70 sheep and you've got to move them every day or two, it can't be anybody's side gig. So um, we, we hired him and he was he was great. He was also trained in regenerative farming. He was an instructor for the Savory Institute, which is one of the leading think tanks on, on regenerative farming. And he just sort of made the whole program make sense in a way that like it had been very um, like seat of the pants, kind of make it up as we go along before. Here's sheepy sheep, go eat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, that sort of dropped into our laps, and it's it's, uh, it's at this at this point we're seeing more and more wineries who are incorporating animals in the winter, and it, there's been a there's developed kind of a community around it. But when we started, there was nothing, and <laughs> so we were having to really create all of these all of these processes from scratch. Yeah. I love it. Um, so if we go back into those vineyards, when um, is there a grape that is kind of like the fussy one. Uh, yes. Uh, there are two, actually. Several? <laughs> right. There are two, at least. Um, the, the two that are the most work are Roussan and Morvedra. Okay. And they're both grapes that are very late ripening. So they're just, they're not super vigorous. They they tend to struggle with any anything that would induce stress in your vineyard anyway. Okay. So when you have a heat spike or you have a drought or you have a virus or you have you have pests like they they'll be everywhere in the vineyard but the impact is greatest mm -hmm. on those slow ripening grapes like Roussan and Moretra. The, the the upside though is that once you get them into set the cellar those are both a pleasure to deal with so 
but they're they're the hardest in the vineyard to be sure. And what about the other? What's the, what's the what's the dream grape? Grenache Blanc is pretty great. Is it? Grenache Blanc is great. Uh, Vermentino is super easy, uh, productive and vigorous, and ripens relatively early and happy, easy. On the red side, Grenache is one of the easier ones. Syrah is pretty easy. Sanso looks like, and that's one of our newer ones, but that one looks like it's it, we're not going to have to fight with it. It's going to oh, okay. do what we want it to do pretty happily. All right. Syrah, I think, is known to be like, I'll just do whatever you want me to do type thing, right? It kind of grows like a yeah. weed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it is. It's a, it's a vigorous grape, and it ripens relatively early, mm-hmm. so you're not fighting with it at the mm-hmm. end of the growing season yeah. and it ripens evenly which is nice because there's varieties that we need to go through and pick the same block three times because it's not all, it's not all right at the same time so right. we've got to pick selectively and leave the rest and then come back a week later and do another pick and then come back a week after that and, and do, do a third it. one and Syrah's not like that you basically yeah. just pick it it's all right all right and then um so is Tablas Creek is it all 100% estate now no so we, about two-thirds of our production comes off of this estate. Okay. The other third is um, from about a dozen vineyards in Paso, to whom most of whom we sold grapevine cuttings to. And that's done under the tier that we call Patelin de Tablas. And Patelin is, is French slang for neighborhood, so it's our wine from our neighborhood. And then we also just debuted the first wine in a new program, which we're calling Ligne de Tablas, which is, as opposed to being blends of vineyards, this is single vineyard expressions of vineyards that have our clones in the ground from different parts of California. So it allows us to branch out outside of Paso for the first time. Uh, We worked with the the Windfall Farms vineyard here in Paso for one of the first two wines. The other is from the Han Vineyard up in Monterey County. And then we have three more that we're doing this year, including the Zaca Mesa Vineyard down in Santa Barbara, and then two really cool vineyards up in the Sierra Foothills, uh, Shake Ridge um, and Finoti. Oh, so, okay. like the chance after thirty years of just doing Paso, the chance to like to get to play with these cool vineyards that, in many cases, we've admired from afar because we've known them since they were planted, right. and do make wines that are gonna show off that place. Like that's we're all super excited about that. Oh, I'm waiting for like down the road a bit where you can do, you know, horizontals of you know, what this grape variety or what this blend tastes like in Paso versus Santa yep. Cruz versus, oh, that's going to be incredible. Yeah, that, no, we're excited too. Yeah, that, uh, sign me up right now. <laughs> sign me up right now. Um, so where it, where can people find Tablas Creek? So we do have distribution. About a third of what we make gets sold in distribution either around the country through restaurants and wine shops, um, even a little bit in export in a handful of markets. Um, but two-thirds of what we make and something like 60% of the wines that we make are only available direct from the winery or, or from our wine club. So um, the place to start either way is on our website, which is tablascreek.com. We've got under the wines menu, we've got a find our wines page where you can plug in your town and see if the wines are for sale at any place near you. Um, and then, of course, anything that you want to get direct from us, that's also the place to go. But we feel like those those two pieces support each other. We're excited to be a part of restaurants and, and, and independent retail wine programs. But we don't make enough wine to find, in general, our wines on like grocery store shelves or, or places like that, with the exception of like some Whole Foods and some okay. of the places that are maybe a little more concerned with some of the farming things that we do. And then if they come here, uh, you can take the drive down. <laughs> or, up, or, over. or up, over, around, everything. Um, are, are you the most west? No, there are a couple of wineries. Justin's actually a little further oh, okay. west than we are, okay. north and west. Um, and a couple of the other things up on Chimney Rock up, up oh, there. okay. Uh, but, yeah, we're pretty far west. We're pretty far west. It, it's a, It's about... 10 miles west of the town of Paso, but it's right at the intersection of Vineyard Drive and Adelaide Road, which is a really beautiful loop. A lot of people do that because Mm -hmm. it's it's some of the prettiest prettiest driving out here, and there's great wineries on both of those those roads. So whether you come out from Templeton on Vineyard Drive and then go back to Paso on Adelaide Road or vice versa, that's a a terrific itinerary. And you have such such an ocean influence here. Um, How far... If as a crow flies, 
It, As the crow flies, it's 10 miles from the ocean. 10 here. miles from the ocean, okay. Um, but there's no roads that go directly right. from here to there, so it's like 40 minutes right. to, to drive it. But the we are tucked up in the in the foothills of those Santa Lucia Mountains. So as you drive out, like, you're climbing this whole time. Uh, so we're at 1,500 feet elevation. And, and that ocean influence is real, uh, both in terms of the rain that we get and how much it cools down at night. And uh, obviously the, the soil piece and all that's connected. Right. It's a big difference when you come out here versus like you're just even going downtown. Often. And then, yeah. It is. And it, I mean, that's one of the things I think people maybe don't realize as much as they could is the diversity just within Paso. Right. I mean, there, there's often a 15 degree difference between the coolest part of Paso and the warmest part of Paso in the afternoon. And there's differences between seven inches of rain on average and 30 inches right. of rain on average and elevations from 600 feet to 2,200 feet. And it's there's there, there's good reason why the community got together a dozen years ago and, and built 11 sub-AVAs within Paso because it, it helps people wrap their heads around what some of that diversity means in terms of wine. Absolutely. And then if they wanted to visit, are you doing walk-ins now or is it appointment only? So we encourage people to make appointments and there may be, may be busy days, particularly on weekends and as we get into the fall where somebody who walks in wouldn't be able to just get seated. But I mean, most weekdays and most not super busy times, we can accommodate walk-ins. And often if it's just something as simple as like, you're at the previous winery and you want to give us a call and say, hey, do you have space? Like okay. we almost always do. So if people want to make reservations, it's great. It's a great way to make sure that you have space, but I, I encourage people to, even if it's last minute to, to check, cause we can probably squeeze you in. Okay, awesome. Did I miss anything? That's always my last question because I always have all these ideas in my head, but I usually, you know, I want to make sure I didn't skip something that is important to you. I guess the the only thing that I would say is that if people are interested in kind of learning more about wine or about wineries or about the business or the process, we try to dive into all of those things on our blog, uh, which we've been writing for more than 15 years. And we have regular things that dive into what's going on in the vineyard and in the winemaking, but I'll also talk about sustainability, talk about politics of, of wine, regulation of wine, talk about grape varieties in detail. So if people are interested in stuff like that, um, we do have a, a real education focus in what we write on the blog and also in, in what we do on social media. So um, if that sounds like uh, if that sounds like your kind of thing, um, I encourage people to check that out. And we're at Tablas Creek at every every Everything. social media channel, um, and then the blog is always linked off of our website. It's an excellent blog. I read it all the time. It it really is an excellent blog. And like I said earlier, I love when you go live. I I don't know why, because but Instagram knows I want to see you. Huh. Awesome. So whenever you go live. I get I get notified that you're live and I don't care what I'm doing I stop and I, <laughs> awesome. I, I, I and I watch because there oh it is it's true it's educational and you have the skill of of not being overly geeky and explaining things like you get to the science of things and explain why things are happening and and make it understandable and we were talking earlier about all of the data points that you provide it it helps me see the bigger picture when I can see what's going on and comparing this vintage to last vintage to whatever. So, Thanks. Yeah, I think, I think it's important. I think wine is still intimidating for a lot of people, and I think that's a shame. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's farming, and, it's, and, and, and the making of wine has been done for 10,000 years, and the enjoying of wine, you don't need to intellectualize it to do it. But... If I can help demystify some of the pieces of it, then I think that's definitely worth doing because I'd love more people to, to fall in love with wine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking your time with me and for sharing the wines and your knowledge and the beautiful location. You're very welcome. Thanks, Lori. <laughs> thank you. Very, very special. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha. No, 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 never let you Now.